You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can make the show just a little bit better, shoot me an email from hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To listen to my catalog of past episodes and hear new ones every week, look for Hidden History on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, and by the time you get to the end of this episode you think I deserve it, I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the show on your preferred platform. It really helps me grow my audience. If you really want, you can also follow me on Twitter, at LSA Tucci. So, without further ado, on to the show. So, earlier this week, I was reviewing some of my old episodes, which, uh, let me tell you, it's kind of strange hearing your own voice on the radio. But, anyway, I was listening to one of my recent episodes, and I realized that I quote a paper in it that talks about post-Fordist economics, and I never really talked about exactly what that is. I'm not going to tell you which episode it was, so if you're really that curious, then I guess you can listen to all of my back episodes, which I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to, but this week, to correct that egregious wrong, I'm going to talk a little bit about industrial history, Fordism, post-Fordism, and Henry Ford's Jungle Utopia. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 60, Fordlandia. So, it turns out that Fordism is a rather tricky term to define, because it's something that's changed a significant amount over the past hundred years and come to represent a number of different things. But I suppose the simplest definition is also the earliest, and in that form, Fordism relates to the mass production techniques used in Henry Ford's factories. And so, to understand Fordism in this first context, we need to take a look at the cultural relationship between mass production and the role of labor in American life before the emergence of a Fordist ideology. That means it's time to talk about early American reactions to modernism. So, modernism is many things. As an aesthetic school, it draws significantly from the teachings of designers and philosophers in interwar Germany, and exists in opposition to the architectural pastoralism represented by the American arts and crafts movement. And aesthetics, the visual trappings of modernism, are incredibly important to driving the adoption of Fordist industrialization by portraying the factory as the aesthetic ideal. The factory represented a new, clean, efficient, and with the addition of the assembly line, a distinctly American mode of production. So to illustrate this, I'm not going to talk about the Ford factories, mainly because if I say Ford one more time, I think I might just die. Instead, I want to talk about something called the Sanitary Bakery. So this portion comes from a wonderful book by Aaron Bobro Strain called White Bread, The Social History of the Storeball Loaf. And here's what he writes about the industrial bakery's response to the unstandardized bread produced in what are referred to as, quote, cellar bakeries. 
Bakeries across the country overwhelmingly adopted the language of clean bread in their advertising, but it was the Wards, an industrial baker, who once again set the bar. Alongside reprinted news reports about the quote, shocking state of cellar bakeries, the Wards invited New York to visit its bakeries. Quote, you can see every detail in the making of Ward's tip-top bread. The human hand never touches bread at these, the greatest bakeries in the world, daylight bakeries, snow-white temples of cleanliness. Transparency, cleanliness, and modernity displaced taste, cost, convenience, and even freshness in bread advertising. The bare hand became the greatest enemy of bread. As a Ward Bakery's ad in the New York Times stressed in italics, bread kneaded by hand or mixed by hand can never be a truly clean sanitary product. Of course, even bread untouched by human hands still required the presence of a few workers, and this bothered consumers bombarded by images of disease-ridden bakers, so Ward's advertising also trumpeted the company's meticulous inspection of the workers' health and habits, even their moral character. So, right off the bat, we can see that, to use a term from last episode, the aesthetic identity of early American industrial modernism is sterility, the removal of the human element. It's this kind of relationship, the divorce between human labor and material production, that's critiqued a lot in popular American media in the earliest 20th century, like Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times and Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World. It turns out the sentiment that the dehumanization of production is a bad thing has been around for a lot longer than the Ford Motor Company. On the topic of spinning mills, which were the subject of early industrial standardization, Joshua Freeman writes in his book Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World, that in the 1800s, quote, many local men proved reluctant to take mill jobs unwilling to submit to the unaccustomed close supervision and discipline that came with them. In any case, mill owners did not want adult men for most positions, preferring women and children whom they could pay less and who did not have the sense of pride and craft that came from apprenticeship training. So with this in mind, we can look at reactions to the beginning of a mass production culture and see that largely resistance against that comes from two places. The first, which we can see in the case of the sanitary bakeries, is resistance to homogeneity. Local bakers who don't want their specialized products to be drowned in a sea of standardized baked goods. The second, which we can see in the case of the knitting mills, is a resistance against challenges to traditional notions of masculinity. I think both of these points could be conglomerated to say that the emergence of mass production culture creates new and unique challenges for identity. The factory, especially in America, is an emblem of social modernism. The design of factories as, quote, snow-white temples of cleanliness suggests that rational capitalistic industrialization will herald in a better future for us all. Before the adoption of Fordism, American industry operated on a system of scientific management called Taylorism. Now, Taylorism is the belief that scientific principles can be applied to a company's operating procedures in order to improve labor efficiency. 
Taylorism is not necessarily primarily concerned with the well-being or benefit of the workers, but rather in driving their economic output ever higher. So Taylorism begins to decline in popularity around 1910, at which point it's supplanted by Fordism, which continues to be the predominant method of industrial organization until it peaks in the 1960s and we end up entering a post-Fordist economic era in the 1980s. Because of this history, Fordist thought is effectively inseparable from the capitalism of America's past. I said earlier that conflicts surrounding the emergence of Taylor Fordism are conflicts based around identity. Now, is that a tad reductionist? Yes. There are a slew of other arguments that were made at the time against the development of standardized industry, some of which I actually talk about in past episodes. But the point is that the conflicts between Fordism and identity weren't completely unfounded, because Fordist modes of production destroy identity. And to back that up, I need to talk about immigrants on the assembly line and the Ford sociological department. So it's pretty common knowledge that Henry Ford was an incredible racist and a massive anti-Semite. I mean, the guy was given a medal by the Nazi government, for God's sake. So with that in mind, it shouldn't be the most surprising thing in the world that he was absolutely obsessed with the Americanization of his immigrant workforce. Now, he did this in a number of ways. For example, people love to say that Henry Ford raised his minimum wage to $5 a day so that every Ford employee could buy a Model T. Well, that's not exactly true. The famous $5 wage was actually tied to a large number of overbearing stipulations. In order to qualify for that salary, employees had to be thrifty, abstain from excess drinking, keep a tidy home, uh, be married, have children, consistently send those children to school, have a healthy marriage, no outstanding loans, the list goes on. It turns out that those same stipulations also applied to any employee who wanted to buy a Ford car. So not only does Ford pursue aggressive assimilation through wage caveats, but he enforces it through the Ford sociological department, which was home to over 200 employees whose job was essentially to spy on other employees all day. It was their job to make sure that everyone collecting a Ford paycheck strictly adhered to the values set out by Ford himself. In concert with that was the efforts of the Ford English School, which was created out of the need to have one language on the assembly line for safety reasons. A diploma from the school could be influential in the citizenship process, but there's one part in particular that sticks out to me just a little bit about the Ford English School. And that's its graduation ceremony. Here's what the Henry Ford Museum itself has written about it. The culmination of the Ford English School program was the graduation ceremony where students were transformed into Americans. During the ceremony, speakers gave rousing patriotic speeches and factory bands played marches and patriotic songs. The highlight of the event would be the transformation of immigrants into Americans. Students dressed in costumes reminiscent of their native homes stepped into a massive stage prop cauldron that had a banner across the front identifying it as the American melting pot. 
Seconds later, after a quick change out of sight of the audience, students emerged wearing American suits and hats, waving American flags, having undergone a spiritual smelting process where the impurities of foreignness were burnt off as slag to be tossed away, leaving a new 100% American. Yikes. I mean, if that doesn't exemplify the destruction of individual identity in the pursuit of capitalistic efficiency, then honestly, I don't know what will. So at this point, uh, I've talked, I'd say, more than a little bit about some of the social impacts of Fordism and the homogeneity necessitated by capital. So now it's time to talk about the namesake of this week's episode, one of the most glaring examples of Fordism's failures. So in 1909, the first synthetic rubber is synthesized in a Bayer laboratory, but it's not exactly commercially viable. Over the next 20 years, the price of natural rubber, which Ford needs for engine parts and car tires, rises significantly as a result of shortages and market domination by the British Empire. As a result, in 1928, the Ford Motor Company decides that it's going to cut right to the source and establish a rubber plantation in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. Ford attempts to create a utopian community out of whole cloth by imposing his ideals onto the rainforest. Workers were housed in American-style bungalows, their children went to Ford-operated schools and saw the doctor in a Ford-staffed hospital. Every house had electricity, running water, a garden, and was accessed by paved roads lined with streetlights. The employees at Fordlandia bought their food at a Ford-stocked grocer, their bread at a Ford-stocked baker. Their clothes came from the Ford tailor, and their hair was cut by the Ford barber. Both the native employees and the ones shipped from Michigan participated in mandatory square dancing sessions and mandatory poetry readings both of which Ford instituted in an attempt to civilize his workers. Fordlandia was a disaster from the onset. The environment was unsuitable for growing rubber. Diseases ravaged the unprepared workforce, killing up to 30% over the course of a few weeks, and efforts at pest control ended up killing every single rubber tree sapling. But these things in and of themselves aren't explicit failures of Fordism. Rather, what is an explicit failure is the fact that worker turnover was astronomically high, that attempts to artificially impose Ford's value system on indigenous Brazilian workers resulted in workers walking off the job, culminating in a 1930 revolt that had to be put down by the Brazilian military. In 1934, the Ford Motor Company realized that their efforts at Fordlandia had been an abject failure and relocated to a new plantation 25 miles downstream of the Amazon River, which was abandoned in 1945. Neither plantation ever produced so much as a single tire's worth of rubber. In the case of Fordlandia, we can see spectacular failure due to arrogance. Just because something works well in Dearborn does not mean it works well in the heart of Brazil. But that concept, essentially like the idea of nuance, is entirely estranged from Fordism. 
To those who believe it, Fordist thought is a blueprint that should be applied identically throughout the whole world, and in doing so, would work for the benefit of all. The thing is, by and large, Fordism has been applied everywhere. There's a great debate about terminology, but by now we live in a post-Fordist world, one that has been invariably shaped by the forces of industrial mass production. Now, it would be absolutely pointless for me to speculate about what a modern world untouched by global Fordism would look like, because that's not what happened. Nobody knows, and to wax on about it would be historical fiction. But I do want to leave you with one question at the end of this episode. If Fordist production methods operate with a complete lack of nuance, then what does a nuanced economy look like? Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.